The Forum at 8 on SAFM. Thank you so much for joining us here on The Forum. And today, as uh, we said earlier, we're asking the question, could genocide happen again? Now, as most of us know, Rwanda held somber commemorations this week to mark the 20th anniversary of the genocide in that country. An estimated 800,000 people died in the genocide, and currently we are seeing continuing violence in the Central African Republic, and one has to wonder, could this lead to another genocide on the African continent. But, but are there other areas in the world where there is also potential for genocide to rear its ugly head again? This is what we're asking, and of course the lines will be open throughout this conversation, so you can join in on uh, 0891-104-208, or you can send us an SMS to 34701, Facebook and Twitter, AM Live on SAFM. That's if you'd like to join in the discussion. Our guest this morning, Professor Somadota Fikeni, who's an independent political and public policy analyst, joining us on the line from Pretoria. Good morning, Dr. Uh, Professor Fikeni. Good morning to you, Sakina, and congratulations on your new role as the captain of this program. Thank you so much, and so glad to be speaking to you in the morning now. Well, you used to be an owl. Now you'll have to learn to be a dove. (laughs) (laughs) We'll get there yet. And uh, in studio with me, uh, the head of Civicus, uh, which I see is uh, the world's largest civil society alliance. I'm joined by uh, Dr. Danny uh, Shriskandaraja. Perfect. Good morning, Uh, Satina. I practiced that one. Thank you so much for coming through. Now, let me start by just asking the question, what is genocide, Danny? Well, uh, we have a very clear definition that was established as early as 1948 by the United Nations in the so-called Genocide Convention, which describes genocide as any acts that have the intent of killing or destroying a community, a national community, a religious community, a racial community. And this could range from murder and killing on the scale that we saw in Rwanda 20 years ago, but it could also include acts like forced sterilization of, of, of women so that they can't reproduce and keep that racial or ethnic group going. Or in the case of a country like Australia, the forced removal of children from their families so that to break the cultural continuity of the Aboriginal community in Australia. So genocide is anything that's intended to destroy an ethnic or racial group. Now, what would be the root cause of that? Well, I think we see throughout human history instances of rivalry between uh, so-called racial or ethnic groups. And, you know, it's the sort of, it's the curse on humanity that we have so much in common yet we find it so easy to fight against each other and construct these differences between peoples. Now, often when we think of genocide, we do think of uh, the more common examples that exist. Uh, We think of uh, Rwanda, we think of the Holocaust. But, uh, Dr. Fikeni, I think one of the indictments on us is that we don't seem to know much more beyond that. In fact, you do have instances, if you take a literal description of genocide, you do have instances such as uh, slavery. Whilst the intent was to remove the population across the oceans, it had a genocidal impact on a scale that had not been seen before. And then you do have the Holocaust. The reasons, as you asked, are varied. Some are religious, 
some are political and some it's just pure racial prejudice uh which is fostered through uh, you know the political systems and then it defines the nature of the conflict now is it is is it something that you know uh relates to power in any specific way i mean for one group of people to essentially exterminate another group of people surely there has to be a power dynamic involved dr figeni well, there is a power dynamic involved in order to carry out genocide, but in reality it's a conflict situation uh, which very often has to be implemented through power. And it's also a socio-psychological situation because you must have a certain image of people over time, socialize people to see others as being less different or a threat to oneself and then that in itself is carried out through power because you can't otherwise kill people on such a mass scale unless you do have an upper hand in terms of the military political uh, or any other power form that's very interesting, Dr. Danny, uh, because if you think about the Holocaust, if you think about Rwanda, these people lived together. They were part and parcel of uh, these communities, of the people who later turned on them. Yeah. So how does that work? Well, I think, I mean, I, I had the privilege of visiting Rwanda a few years ago and spending time at their memorial, which is one of the most moving things I've ever done in my life. And one of the things that struck me was if you look back as, as recently as a few decades ago, the Hutu, the Tutsi and Tswa in Rwanda were living peacefully. And in fact, I would think that the real start of the sort of ethnic rivalry or the racial rivalry in Rwanda was the issuing of national identity cards by the Belgian colonists, which labelled people as Hutu or Tutsi or Twa. And that set in, in, uh, in track a process of, of differentiation according to sort of ethnic group. And what we saw in 1994 was the sort of extreme manifestation, sort of the ugly tip of the conflict iceberg, um, which you know, took decades to sort of boil up. Uh, but when that tipping point occurred, it sort of it was you know 800,000 people in 100 days. We think is the biggest loss of human life in human history. Uh, in terms of sort of you know uh, murder, no other period of world history have we seen such violence and brutality. But you know, only a few decades ago, these people were living peacefully together. But if we think of the South African situation, uh, Dr. Fikeni, we have you know various ethnic groupings, and how does that then bode for us as a nation? Well, I do think that uh, we do have some kind of a blessing in a way because even though you do have ethnic groups even though colonial and apartheid government tried very hard to separate them an antidote as part of the struggle to that very effort to separate was people coming together and the fact that early missionaries and schools tended to also allow the elite to converge in one place coming from different ethnic groups, also allowed for some degree of acculturation and integration. As a result, over time, 
you look at some of the leaders, just to give you an example. A Tabombegi, the mother, the father happened to be uh, what generally would be to, uh, called Tosa. Uh, the mother is Sutu. So it's very difficult for him to be one and completely reject the other. You take a Nelson Mandela and see uh, him uh, initially marrying a Klesibe, and then she marries a woman from Pondoland, and then she ends up marrying, uh, you know, a woman from Mozambique. So all those kinds of things over time created bonds, even at the time when the third force tried to put as much effort into creating the Zulu-Tosa conflict. It just didn't work. What you see instead is an intra-ethnic conflict, which is political in nature, whether it's the political killings in KZN or conflicts elsewhere. It's not between different groups. So to that extent, South Africa also has uh, you know, a potential of dealing with these problems. Not to say that the problem of tribalism is something we should look away, uh, you know, from. And secondly, that you do not have any ethnic group that is more than 30% of the population of South Africa. So, but, but, but the issue of tribalism in South Africa, is that something, I mean, if you speak to people, they say to you, you seem to be... Uh, seeing more of that uh, tribal entrenchment at the moment where people are self-identifying more and more often as a person of a certain grouping. Is that something that should be discouraged at all for fear of perhaps at a later stage leading us to conditions that may be ripe for a genocide? It should be uprooted uh, wherever it shows its head whether it's uh, patterns of appointment or patterns of regionalism, because even if it may not lead to genocide, it will always lead to social disorder in many ways. And uh, that in itself, and let me make a distinction here. There is a study that has been done by several scholars. I can note here Professor Igosa Osaga that there is nothing wrong, in essence, with ethnic identity and being proud of one's own origins. But there is everything wrong with ethnicism, where you say, because I am therefore, I am better off than the others, or I am different and special from the others. That's where the problem comes. Now, who gets to decide whether a certain incident is actually genocide or whether it's just, you know, uh, mass unrest? Uh, well, I think that, I mean, the, the UN has this convention that's set in international law that clearly defines when, when an incident or a set of incidents uh, amount to genocide. And in fact, this has obviously been one of the most contentious aspects of, of say, what happened in Rwanda. So some of us will recall that um, there was a lot of tension at the time about whether the United States in particular, but also the UN system in general, would accept that what was going on in Rwanda was genocide. And there was reluctance by the then US Secretary 
Secretary of State Madeleine Albright to use the word genocide because if she had used it, it would have triggered certain international law obligations on the international community. And the sad thing, of course, is that it happened again in Darfur, in, in Sudan, and you might even be seeing it happen now in the Central African Republic. So, you know, so, this and, is and, and that's the interesting bit right now, the Central African Republic, because people are talking about genocide, but are we there yet? I'm not sure about what's going on in the in the in the CAR itself, but I think uh, you know whether it sh- is, it can be fit the legal definition of a genocide or not. But what I am clear about is that the international community has been remarkably slow in preventing or addressing what we know is happening on the ground. There's documentary evidence of of killings. We know it's ethnically or religiously motivated. It looks like a genocide. It smells like a genocide. We have international obligations in the international community to intervene, and it's only later today that we're going to see the first arrival of of, of UN, or the the decision on uh, the uh, UN-led forces, or peacekeeping forces in, in, in the CAR. But then, does this mean that we haven't really learned anything Dr. Fikini because if it takes this long if it takes that many lives to be lost before a situation is declared as a genocidal what have we learned? We have learned a lot in terms of Rwanda the UN is more sensitive now but the problem is that it works through the effort of member states and most of the member states are driven by their national interests and the geopolitics Therefore, they are wary of committing their forces, even though they know that mass killing as such may lead to that critical threshold of a genocide. And the sad thing about genocide is that we may look at a technical definition of the UN Convention. The problem is that once it's a genocide, it's more like certifying a person dead. Otherwise, the mass killing points towards a direction of a genocide in a place like Central African Republic, that it may actually be smaller in numbers than the 800,000 or a particular threshold, should also be read in relative to the population itself. Let me give you one simple example. The Hereros at the beginning of the 20th century Almost 80% of that population was wiped out by the Germans. At that time, in terms of the population of that time, you might just say it was just 100,000 or 200,000, but that was 80% of that particular community. And that makes for stark reading. We'll we'll come back to that point. We just need to take a spot break. And then we'll invite the callers to join in the conversation. Donald in Limpopo and others will take your calls after this. 0891-104-208. Well, when it comes to the government, I've said it once and I'll say it again. Got what they deserve, what we needed. But that diplomatic secretary they sent here in well, she can stay any time if you know what I mean. <laughs> hey, somebody light my cigar, will you? Olivia Pope is the fixer. When it comes to the president, you'll only know what she wants you to know. Catch season one of this political thriller Tuesdays at 9.30 on SABC3. The Forum at 8 on SAFM. 
Should genocide happen again? That's what we're asking this morning on the forum at 8. Do send us your comments on uh, 34701 or you can give us a call on 0891-104-208. Dr. Danny, you were saying before the break? Well, I was just going to come back on Professor Fakeni's point about whether the UN and the international system has learned lessons on, on preventing genocide. I'm not so sure about that. I think that uh, we hear very great words coming out of our leaders at the international level. And we had uh, the UN Secretary General making a big speech in Brussels only a few days ago about genocide at a major conference. Um, but if you look at you know, the, the international system's ability to prevent conflict in the first place, we see too many instances where the international community has failed to, to intervene early enough. When, if you look at protecting civilians, we've seen examples where the international community or peacekeepers have not been able to protect the lives of civilians. Uh, if you take, think about the most important thing, which is taking swift and decisive action, which is what the UN system says it will do if it thinks there's genocide going, where are the examples of that swift and it didn't happen in Darfur, it hasn't happened in CAR and you know anything that has to be put through the lens of a, of a security council, of the UN Security Council which is still controlled by these five old powers uh, or, uh, you know, especially in the case of the US and, and even in, uh, emerging powers like China and Russia which are blocking for geopolitical reasons um, the intervention to protect civilian lives. So would it be fair to say then um, that the Security Council are slow to act when it doesn't concern the big boys, Dr. Fikini? Certainly, that's the point I was making earlier, and I concur with my colleague there that as much as intuitively we must have learned a lot in terms of action itself and commitment, we're still la- uh, lagging behind. The UN system, which unleashes and authorize the world to take up arms and go to a particular nation, it's still very much paralyzed by the big five permanent security council members who have veto powers whenever anything comes close to the areas of their immediate interest. They are quick to jump in, then the other one, if it will inconvenience them, they will block it. Uh, For example, now going beyond even the continent, look at uh, Ukraine. Mm. That this has degenerated into an ethnic divide in terms of politics, if not contained, could easily lead to a similar, you know, clash. Uh, But also let's remember that some of these clashes, like we saw in uh, Cambodia during the time of Pol Pot, are ideological and political, where people want to enforce a particular view that they so strongly believe in, and anybody who doesn't follow that, then they simply eliminate. Uh, So that in itself, I think it is very, very important uh, for the UN Security Council to be reformed in a manner that makes it responsive to some of these things. Well, taking your calls right now on 0891-104-208, could genocide happen again? Donald in Limpopo, good morning. Good morning, my sister, Jojo and Dr. Fikini. We fine, thanks. Welcome, Donald. Thank you very much, my sister. Uh, my first thing that I can say in relation to this discussion, you see... Africans, we are very much ignorant to ourselves 
because if you can check the way we draw our policies that govern uh, our countries as a continent, uh, what I have read, we draw our policies according to who colonized who uh, in the past, because so, for an example, we as South Africans, uh, I think we go using the foot of England, America, and the like. Okay. But when you go up, but when you go up to the north there, you find them. Uh, um, they are related to Muslims and Arabs and the like. Secondly, um, look at how things are going in the DRC especially the eastern part of it, which means uh, the government failing uh, to satisfy the people economically. Uh, okay. Okay. Donald, we're just going to leave it there because I just want to take another call before uh, we go to news and then we'll answer those questions just after the news. Uh, Essentia in Durban, good morning. Um, greetings, this is Santiwa. I just want to thank you for including some balanced comments from your guests. I'm grateful that, you know, uh, Smadoda mentioned the slavery, the Mahafa, the greatest genocide that has still not been repaired and no restorative justice. And the reason why we as Africans could see this again is because we have a, a terrible amnesia because of the trauma that has been brought upon us. We need to put in place monuments, just like the Jews, the Indians. Everywhere they have been traumatized, they put monuments to remind themselves that never again will that happen to their people. We need to ask for restorative justice in the form of monuments. In South Africa, Jan Smut had murdered so many in the Eastern Cape. Nobody talks about that anymore. So our, our, our link to our trauma becomes almost... Uh, we, we, we really willingly begin to, to, to not think about the pain, but we have to think about it because until we do, our children will not remember. So I am asking that we don't depend on the UN to give us money to raise monuments, but Africans, wherever trauma has been left, we leave it for our children to remember because otherwise, yes, we will have genocide on the scale that we'll never, ever see again. Thank you so much, Asantiwa. And this is, of course, uh, the forum at 8. It is time now for news headlines, and we'll be taking your calls when we come back. The Forum at 8 on SAFM. Thank you, Ruina. Lots to look forward to there. And back to the forum now where we are asking, can genocide happen again? And uh, got some SMSs coming through and we'll put that to our panel. We're speaking this morning to uh, Professor Soma Dota Figeni as well as Dr. Danny. He said I could call him Dr. Danny <laughs> this morning. Uh, just looking at those SMSs, Regium Kizia says, no, it won't happen again. Sinetemba Zonke says, have we not seen that happen in Sudan? Uh, African leaders still protecting Bashir, what's happening in the Central African Republic? And then uh, Toloba Makambo uh, Prize says Godfrey, more than 5 million have died in Eastern DRC as a result of Rwanda's, uh, Rwanda's intervention displacing and destroying communities. Uh, Bill in Durban says, uh, we have a form of genocide already in South Africa against our farmers who are being slaughtered daily and nothing is being done about that. Dr. Fikeni? Well, I do think that uh, the first thing that we should always guard against, for example, the issue of farmers, 
it's when people from that community tend to isolate themselves as and see themselves as victims, just as farmers, ignoring the national statistics which shows that a person in a black township is most likely to die than a farmer. Not to say that there should be no strict security measures to protect a very important farming community that we have. And also the fact that some of the black farmers, when they die because of the crime, which is quite rife in many places, it doesn't make news as such. So I do think that even as we deal with some of these instances where you have a generalized problem of crime, we should identify it as such rather than isolate sections of the community. But I want to go back to uh, the point I made when we opened. Visually, when people talk genocide, they do have in the museum skulls to display. But when you look at close to 20 million slaves who perished in the high seas and some were exported, systematically removed from their communities, even though this may have happened before the conventional definition of genocide, that is genocide. There are no shelves in the Atlantic Ocean to show the skulls. Mm. But all the weak were thrown away even on arrival, some of them were shot and killed. So on a scale, because of the relative perception that Africans might be weaker, and that in this particular instance, imperial forces from Europe were involved, we tend to understate the fact that one of the major genocidal instances was there, the same as Native Americans. Some were almost wiped out completely, but because of the hegemonic powers, even in defining what problems are there in human experience, those tend to be in the margins. And, of course, just going back, uh, Dr. Danny, to uh, Donald and Asantiwa. Asantiwa uh, talking about uh, restorative justice and Donald raising the issue of policies and governance and how that uh, could perhaps, you know, fuel uh, the conditions under which genocide could possibly happen. Well, I think there's, they both make very valid points about the fact that we need to uh, face the past. And, you know, Professor Pekeni is just talking about the, the real, you know, the legacy of, of, of slavery and recognizing, you know, the severity and the intensity of that. And I think, you know, we need to have systems which bring people to justice you know, because the more you have impunity for for um, for the acts co- you know done by people around the world, uh, the more it will it will lead to others following suit. And so the rule of law is incredibly important, which then relates to governance and how you manage conflict. You know, as I said earlier, I think you know rivalry and antagonism is a is a sort of natural part of human existence, but it gets dangerous when it gets politicized and political institutions, political parties start to campaign on ethnic differences. You know, there are campaigns that spread propaganda and, and, uh, and lies about different groups. That's when it gets dangerous and what we need are strong institutions, whether that's the justice system or the, or the political system or a parliamentary system, where, which can start to manage these processes and prevent it from becoming extremist. I just want to ask a quick question before I go back to the lines. Could one have 
genocide against another gender, like men against women or vice versa? Uh, you could certainly, I mean, there are instances where uh, uh, particularly women are used as targets of, 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 war, of war crimes. And we have sadly seen uh, brutal treatment of women uh, in, uh, during conflicts, not necessarily around genocide, but certainly around um, uh, conflicts around the world. And as I said earlier, a, a sort of a key strategy that doesn't hit the headlines as much is forced sterilization. So if you really want to prevent a, an ethnic or religious community from growing or reproducing, uh, you find ways of sterilizing women. Um, and, it, you know, it, it, it doesn't hit the headlines as much mm. as, as machetes on streets with, with killing, but it can be just as devastating in terms of destroying an ethnic or religious group. Let's go to the lines now. Uh, Hassan Logat in Joburg. Good morning. Hi. Uh, Siki, uh, welcome. I wasn't intending to call. I was happy listening. But as I was driving through Hillbro, I saw a policeman uh, in a vehicle stop on the side of the road and stop a young woman who presumably would be Zimbabwean, and they start opening up the back of the van to let her go in. Now, I think what we need to do is that, uh, that we can talk about the nice conventions that we have, but the daily practice of police and others, where they criminalize other communities, results in the massacres that South Africa's had against foreigners in this country, you know, 2008, I think. So I really want, I think that the, the role of the media, the role of, of the police and others in engendering a climate of hate, you know, outside these resolutions are, are really a problem. And there, maybe, she, she's a, a young-looking woman. They, they just stop, and this is in front of me, and they open up the back. So, of course, everything else becomes possible now, you know. So, really, really, I think we need to look at these agencies. And in Rwanda, the media played a vile role in this country. The, uh, the, the media is only vigilant when it comes to, to, to monitoring the state, but when it comes to corporations, they really are, are lab dogs, I think. All right, thank you, Hassan Logat. Let's go to Arnold. Good morning. Arnold, the line is not great. I'm going to put you back to uh, Ronald, and he'll try and get you on a better line. But in the meantime, we'll speak to Mr. Karim out in Durban. Good morning. Good morning. Morning, Mr. Karim. How are you now? Very well, thanks. And you? Thank you, guest. Uh, I just want to focus on three different points. Maybe your your guest will agree with me or disagree, but let me first of all tell you we have a very major problem in this world, unfortunately. You see, a genocide is not caused by people. People are uh, governed by ruthless uh, tyrants who basically create this atmosphere of hatred. Now, if you look at all the conflicts in the world, you take Syria, take uh, Egypt, which are Muslim countries, there's no other, there are other minority groups, but the fight is between two same religious groups of different factions, but the, if you look at the core of the situation, which is not a genocide, but in, in, in direct way, I mean, thousands of people are dying in Syria, as well as other countries, it's because they're unhappy with the government. I mean, these guys are in power, they want to be in power, they don't give the masses that are in there the rights and authorities to be governed you know, like decent human beings, and they create the atmosphere of unconditional living because they are committing atrocities in the prisons, they lock them up, uh, they, they treat them, you know, like uh, animals, uh, unfortunately, but same thing is happening in Sudan, same thing is happening in Congo, same thing happened in Zimbabwe. It's not the people. People can get together and 
uh, we can facilitate. Another aspect of the fact is, unfortunately, whether it's a Christian, whether it's a Hindu, whether it's a Muslim, the fact is, I find the lack of uh, accountability, the fact that the leaders themselves don't have the accountability to Almighty God with whatever religion they belong to, they become tyrants. They, the whole idea of these governments is leading to the fact that they are basically there to, bear, um, to, to, to line their pockets at the expense of the poor masses who are starving, who have no food. Now, this creates a very, very unconditional atmosphere in any country because, you know, it's happening all over at the moment, in Venezuela, in Pakistan, in uh, other countries that are westernized. You know, I understand your guest is saying that it's fair, but the point is it's not fair because there is no accountability. I mean, you take the world court. They've taken two people after so many years. I mean, I was just I think the president of Uganda, or, and what happened? They, these guys must be taken to task, okay. handed over to these uh, people that, uh, that, 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 uh, that actually monitor this type of situation, take these government officials, and take them and take them to task and hang them, or, right. or probably give them a type of sentence that other, other governments can realize it's not going to work that way, because human beings are human beings. And they have to be treated like human beings. And, 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 and genocide is not conducted by people because factions start fighting with one another because the one says, well, I like Mr. James, the other one says, I like Mr. Jones. Now that's what causes conflict. But Got you, Mr. Curry. We'll get a response to that. Thank you so much. Arnold in Botswana. Let's see if that line's better this time around. Arnold? Okay, thank you very much. Much uh, better. Good morning. Good morning. Okay, um, I wanted good morning. I wanted to ask uh, the guests what they think about this hypothesis, uh, because uh, I'm from Congo. And that's what most of the Congolese they think that uh, the Rwandese they shot that plane, the Tutsi, knowing that that will lead to a genocide, and then the Tutsi majority will take power, and then what they were eyeing were the riches in Congo, and what they are doing now, they are raping women in Congo, and then to replace them with a Tutsi population. So that general Rwandan genocide is a big fallacy. At the end of the day, they knew exactly what they wanted. They just wanted the sympathy of the world. So underneath, they can do the work which was really to, to, to monopolize the minerals and everything in that region. So I would like you get to, to, to reform on that. Thank you very much, Arnold, there on the line from Botswana. And um, I just also want to highlight this um, to factor into your responses, uh, Dr. Danny and Dr. Fikini. Um, we have... Two unsigned SMSs. The first one says, the racism between Hutu and Tutsi predated the colonial uh, Belgian era. And the second one says, how can your guests claim that pre-colonial Hutu, Tutsi and Dua were peacefully living together? Uh, were they not kingdoms fighting each other for resource and land control? So, Dr. Danny, let me start with you. Okay, fair point. I think that uh, th- there has been conflict throughout human history. Humans find all sorts of reasons to fight each other. But I think what we've seen, particularly as a result of the colonial past, where imperial powers divided up bits of the planet, lumped people together for administrative or economic reasons, and then categorized them in these racial or tribal or whatever, and formalized these differences, and then let's, you know, uh, confront the truth, played the game of divide and rule within these countries. And I think, yes, of course, Hutus and Tutsis had some rivalry as separate kingdoms of such, but there was a history of, of, of relative peace. Never on the scale of their history have they seen conflict of this nature. And I think we have to sort of root it in, in, in colonial politics. But then coming to Arnold's point, I think the tipping point is what's interesting. And this is where it's so unpredictable, which is why 
you know, answering a question like can genocide happen again becomes so difficult because we don't know what could trigger a genocidal event like this. If there is low-level conflict, if there is rivalry, if there is inequality between ethnic or racial groups, then we don't know, quite know what the tipping point is. We think the tipping point in Rwanda was, of course, this plane crash involving the, the two uh, presidents, but that signals the fact that this conflict was rooted in the politics of what was going on in the region, which sadly, 20 years on, we still haven't sorted out what's going on in, in the Congo Basin. And, you know, so these are manifestations of deep-rooted political rivalry, often where pol politicians for greed or control of power are playing people off each other. And Dr. Fikini? Well, I do think that uh, there is a fair point that one of the callers made is that the institutional arrangement and the democracy that should be in place is very important. In other words, where you do have ethnic groups or regions, a fair distribution of resources and some degree of autonomy recognizing those diversities tend to give some expression to those who may feel suffocated in a particular political system. But also, let's recognize another somewhat uh, not easy to notice phenomenon in the Sahel region along Sahara you do have the encroaching desertification which is creating a lot of pressure in terms of resources in some places like Nigeria you'll then find that in the northern regions that's where you have a predominantly Muslim population and in the coastal regions, you do have, uh, you know, predominantly Christian and so forth. And the struggle for resources and how resources are distributed creates all kinds of conflicts and people start organizing themselves, sometimes ethnically. So an early warning system and a quick force, which may be an AU force, not waiting for the UN, becomes very necessary to deal with some of the cases where a country is not able to deal with those. An early warning system then, Dr. Fikeni, would almost imply that we do have a set, you know, um, a rule book that tells us these are the uh, flashpoints you should be looking out for, and if you can tick a certain number of them, then you should be worried. Uh, am I correct? That is correct. In fact, if you look at genocides uh, and you compare all of them, there are early signs when you start having a systematic elimination of people for their religious or ethnic or political, uh, you know, uh, reasons. Uh, just uh, uh, on a lighter note, the question you asked whether genocide could be against women. I think men are so dependent on women, <laughs> even though they exploit them. Even there's, if they a lot of, there's a lot of fraternizing between the two. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it wouldn't actually be very easy. As soon uh, as I thought of it, I thought, but they can't do without us. <laughs> uh, let me just take Rebecca out in Cape Town. Rebecca, good morning. Morning. Um, the reason I, I am following is that I think that in, in this hour you haven't defined genocide firmly enough. So that's why questions can arise of slavery and that I think genocide has a definition and the definition really is 
uh, systematic extermination of a people. So, you know, children and, 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 and women will be targeted because they, they, they generate that, you know, that, that culture or that, that, that tribe or whatever it is. And the other thing that I think is important to note is that in all the writings on genocide, is that it comes down to one, uh, comes down to one beginning point. And the beginning point is language used that has defined the beginning of genocide. And I don't think we're strict enough on it. Hate speak is the beginning. It dehumanizes and it slowly brings into consciousness that a certain per, a certain group is not human enough to exist. And it happens gradually and I think we see it and we do nothing about it. Freedom of speech is allowed. We have it in this country. You've heard it in Guerra Guerra and that I think this can spiral out. I think it is as simple as that. It's a simple beginning of the seed of dehumanization. Thank you and so much, uh, Rebecca. Thank you. Dr. Danny? Well, I think Rebecca's made a valid point about being very strict about the, the, the definition of genocide. But I think we need to see genocide as that extreme manifestation of other forms of, of ethnic or religious rivalry and conflict. And, you know, we, we obviously need to act swiftly on genocide, but we also need to, to manage those conflicts, to prevent, you know, do what we can to prevent them. So if you take something like freedom of speech, you need to allow people to express themselves. And, you know, we at Civicus believe in, in civil society, the civic freedoms that we all have to expression, to assembly and those sorts of things. And without those, you'll push resentment under the carpet and, and, and they're, you know, more likely to get to a sort of tipping point. But that's the challenge of any diverse country. South Africa faces it, you know, just like any other diverse country. But how do you manage those tensions uh, and make sure that they don't go into that sort of extreme version of violence leading possibly to genocide? Uh, Dr. Fikini, um, Rebecca speaks about language and the role that language plays. And maybe just to factor into that what Hassan Logat was saying earlier about the role of the media. Well, I do think that uh, language, not in a strict sense of which language you speak, but rather the content of it in a manner that dehumanizes, as well as the role of mass media, because it's a fact today that with the modern technology, the information age, what gets transmitted is through the media. Let me give you a simple example. In the exchange of prisoners between Israel and uh, Palestine, you had one Israeli soldier and uh, almost a thousand Palestinians who were released. And yet, most of your mainstream Western media focused on this one soldier, visited the family, asked the people who studied with the soldier. But we never got to know what the families of Palestinians were going through. That is a way of a very subtle dehumanization of people to say these are important. The others are not important in conflict situations. Similarly, in your Afghanistan and elsewhere, when a Western soldier dies, you'd be told how the parents are grieving. When a wedding party is mistakenly bombed, the media never goes to ask whose aunt, whose uncle was there on the ground. So I think self-introspection on the part of the media is very, very important. Uh, it's not just the government uh, suppressing the media, but it's also 
the fact that media itself plays a very important role. It did in Bosnia. Uh, it did in Rwanda. And it's continued to do that in many places. And I just want to read through some of the uh, SMSs coming through as we wrap up. Uh, this one from Lasco saying the AU has an intervention force in the Central African Republic, so there is uh, international action. UN isn't the only international body. And then uh, an unsigned SMS says Israeli genocide of the Palestinian people. It's being ignored by the world. Lumka says, I find it hard to believe your eminent panel is oblivious to the real root of this evil. Do they think Satan does not exist. And then Regium Kize says, well, I believe Africa is moving forward and catching up with the rest of the world. I also think that organizations like the AU, ECOWAS, SADC, and others will prevent or intervene should there be symptoms of such. We have learned from the past, and I do not think it will be repeated. Uh, Said Abdullah Wasami says, God forbid, yes, with our greedy, corrupt, careless, and lazy African leaders, Anything is possible. And Chinemo Elia says, not really, but I think some race, uh, some races still think they are superior than others, and tribalism is still there and always will be there everywhere in the world. We just need to teach the world that we are all the same and no one is better than the other, and the UN will intervene. So a mixed bag there, but uh, obviously a discussion uh, that could go on for a long time, um, and I would concur with Rebecca you know, to some degree that perhaps we need to have more discussions just to clarify these uh, definitions a little more because if you look at some of the questions coming through, people asking about IFP members killing Kosa speaking people, you know, is that genocide or is it something else? So clearly it calls for a discussion for another day, but we have to leave it there. Dr. Danny, Dr. Figeni, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. So that was uh, the forum at 8 talking about genocide, seeing that Rwanda is uh, celebrating 20 years since that uh, event uh, took place in their country. Will it happen again? Well, you decide. And at this point, thank you to the production team for making sure it went out loud and clear. And Swaki Ku and uh, Tracy Bumgard, Apiwe Honono, Jake Mukwena and Maruma Kekana, Aubrey Limpofu, our senior producer, the forum producers, Ronald Piri and Tlengiwe Mabaso, technical producer Ntogozo Kuzwayo, specialist producer Vuzi Lukoto, and our executive producers uh, Busi Chane, as well as Aubrey Sechie. We obviously will be back tomorrow, bright and early, with the uh, forum and other news on AM Live here on SAFM. But for now, we are going to hand you over to a morning talk with uh, Rowena Bird. It's been good, and take care.